Hi there, welcome along to a brand new episode of the High Performance Podcast. If you've not joined us before, an especially warm welcome, you're about to hear a conversation with one of the most remarkable people that we've ever spoken with. Um, And that's what High Performance is all about, really. It's just conversations with world-leading entrepreneurs, artists, sports people, business leaders, anyone who has set the bar or changed the story in the in the area of the world in which they operate. We want to hear from them on the podcast. And they're quite intense conversations because we don't sort of beat around the bush or float around the edges. We get straight in, straight to the heart of how and why and what they've done. I can't wait for you to hear today's episode. Um, a little teaser of what to expect is coming up shortly. But first, we have a book coming out. I'm sure many of you know that already by now. And if you listen to the podcast, I guess, you know, you're the kind of person that likes hearing audio and um, and you absorb information in that way. Um, in in which case the audiobook may well be perfect for you. All you have to do if you want to pre-order right now the audiobook for high performance lessons from the best on becoming your best, scroll down in the description to this podcast, hit the link and you can order your very own audiobook. As well as that, we are coming on tour in 2022. If you would love to come and join us, we're going to Manchester in December and tickets sold out in about three days. So we're going to be coming back to Manchester, I believe, in 2022, but going to a few other cities as well. So if you want to register your interest to come and have a really amazing, I mean, we had a meeting this week. Man, we are planning some awesome stuff for our tour if you want to come and join us on tour if you want to come and see us live if you want to hear from a guest live if you want loads of other big surprises at a live event from high performance then go to the high performance podcast.com and register your interest right now and as soon as i can i will send you an email with all the details right let's give you a little teaser of what you can expect on today's high performance podcast i think people often are frustrated that they're not getting what they want without actually having clearly defined what it is that they want. And if you just sort of think about a simple method in your mind, ask yourself, what do you really want in life? And then come up with a process for achieving it. Brilliant. Um, Will, Will Ahmed, the founder of Whoop, who we're talking to today, is is brilliant. He's in his early 30s, right? He's built a multi-billion dollar business. I think you'll hear him say on the podcast, it's valued at, at over three billion. But what really stood out to me from the conversation you're about to hear is not just that this was born out of curiosity and how often do we talk about that on the podcast. It was also created through passion. How often do we talk about that on the podcast? And he... The way he talks, he is as relentless as ever for his drive to make Whoop successful. And how often do we talk about relentlessness on the podcast? Um, he's incredibly eloquent. He's remarkably bright. And he shares some amazing stuff. In fact, Damien and myself were busy making notes throughout the whole conversation. So I know you're going to get loads from this. You might have never have heard of Will Ahmed before, but he is a US-based entrepreneur who has so much that you can learn from so i really hope you enjoy the conversation once again a million thanks for coming to high performance to be uplifted and to be inspired i really hope you enjoy today's episode it comes next hey as you know this podcast wouldn't exist without lotus cars not only are they the epitome of a high performance car manufacturer but they also have a really good heart as well. You may not know that I'm a a trustee of a brilliant charity called the Community Sports Foundation, and Lotus have given us a car. Not just any old car, they've given us the very first Lotus Elise 240 Sport Final Edition. So the Lotus Elise is coming to the end of its days. The very first final Lotus off the production line they've given to us. And here's the really good news. That car can be yours 
for just nine pounds. It's totally unique. It's totally special. Um, and every single penny of the profits made will be going to directly help people through the Community Sport Foundation, which is an amazing charity I work with. We drive inclusion for people with disabilities. We boost mental health and well-being. Um, we inspire disadvantaged people. We work really hard to engage with our community and if you would like to get your hands on this unique Lotus Elise 240 Sport Final Edition you can enter the draw. The draw is actually made very soon, Sunday the 31st of October. So if you want to be involved all you have to do is go right now to bridgeclassiccarscompetitions.co.uk or just type in Bridge Classic Cars into your search engine. It'll take you there and you can then enter and you will stand a chance of getting your hands on that Lotus Elise and at the same time helping charity. So thank you and really thank you, everyone at Lotus Cars. Love you, Lotus. Today's guest is a man who seemingly doesn't see boundaries, and if he does, he sees a way around them. He's the son of an Egyptian immigrant. He grew up in Long Island in the United States, but what he actually longed for was to make his mark. Like many people, he graduated from university, but how many graduates actually go on to then create their own business? How many of those businesses end up being valued at over a billion dollars? But I think, and we'll find out from him, possibly more important than that, how many of those businesses directly impact people's lives for good? Not just 10 people or 100 people, but thousands of thousands of people every single day. And how many people that have created those businesses do it quickly? How many end up being named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list? This is a man who's done amazing stuff. He's done it quickly. And he's now going to share with us the story of how he got to where he is today. We're absolutely delighted to welcome to High Performance the founder of the wearable tech brand Whoop. They've been previous partners with us on High Performance. It was amazing, actually. We spoke about them and hundreds of people went out and bought them and then got in touch to tell us they loved it. So uh, it's only right that we should talk to Will about how it was all created and where he's at today. Will, thank you so much for joining us from the United States. Jake, Damien, thank you guys for having me. So listen, we always start our interviews in exactly the same way. In your mind, what is high performance? I think high performance is exceptional output delivered consistently. You know, I think at various points in my life when I was thinking about high performance personally, I would view it as sort of a singular thing. Like you have a, a, a great result or, uh, you, you know, you win the game or you, you score well on a test and it's sort of a, it's an individual performance, right? A singular moment. And the more time that I've spelled, spent building a business as an entrepreneur who's trying to perform at a high level and then also because Whoop works with many of the best athletes in the world being around really great athletes, the more I've appreciated that high performance is also uh, consistency day in, day out. So tell us where that originally came from then because I think if I asked the 18-year-old you what is high performance, it would have been different. Can you remember when you first started that journey to learning it's about being relentless, but it's about being consistently relentless. Well, I was always into sports and exercise growing up. You know, I, I probably played a dozen different sports as a young athlete. I went on to play squash while I was at Harvard, and so I was a competitive college athlete. And I would say that my perspective on performance as, say, you know, 20 and younger was always, uh, okay, I've got a, you know, an upcoming match, an upcoming game, like I'm going to try to win that. And it was less about where I am today and in this moment and more about uh, can I win that thing coming up. And it didn't really matter to me if I sort of ran myself into the ground along the way or uh, 
you know, uh, wasn't necessarily optimal in other aspects of my life. As a college athlete, I was someone who struggled with overtraining, uh, which is, you know, a phenomenon many listeners are probably familiar with where you get fitter and fitter and fitter, then you sort of fall off a cliff in an unexpected way. And I know you guys are, are quite familiar with that phenomenon. I was also surrounded by other athletes who, you know, I felt like undertrained or misinterpret fitness peaks or didn't necessarily understand the importance of recovery. They got injured. And so at, at that point in time, I became very personally interested in what did it mean to actually be optimal? What did it mean to train effectively? And this led me down a, a physiology path. It led me to doing a lot of physiology research while I was in school. I was technically studying government and economics while I was at Harvard, and I ended up spending a lot of time in the science department, which was unfamiliar territory. And I would say that whole process of, of learning and, and researching and, and really recognizing my own limitations as an athlete or an individual uh, got me interested in this idea of consistency and, and from a WHOOP standpoint, this idea of, of recovery. So, Will, I'm fascinated by the idea that you started your business then that by identifying a problem. You know, in your case, it was burning out, having overtrained, and then the curiosity to go and look for a solution. So can you explain why you think that's so important um, for any business to identify a problem and then look for the solution? Well, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs now at, at my stage in, in building a company. And I always find it's it's easier to build a business if you're obsessed with the problem more so than the upside of building a company. I do meet young people who say, you know, I want to start a company. What, what should I start or how can I start something? And in my case, I, I became so obsessed with this problem that starting a company was like the last step in that in that evolution. I, I became an entrepreneur well before I even knew what an entrepreneur was. And so I, I tend to find that, that if you become really obsessed with the problem, that's what will pull you through in the end. And it'll help you over, overcome enormous challenges along the way. It'll help you really define what it is that you're after. It'll help you, uh, you know, create a culture that's around solving that problem, being very mission driven versus say, uh, you know, I want to make a big buck. And, uh, and so I, I like to gravitate towards entrepreneurs who are uh, focused on solving a specific problem. So can you tell us about what some of those problems that you experienced were? Well, overtraining was probably the main lens that I was looking at it from. You know, why is it that some days uh, I felt like I could just keep training and training and training, and then some days somewhat randomly it seemed like, you know, it'd be hard to play a single game? And, uh, and why did it also seem somewhat random how I felt on the day of matches, which is, of course, when you wanted to feel your peak. And so that just got me sort of interested in a very specific question, which is how, how could I know how hard I should train before I trained? And why wasn't that something that was sort of commonly recognized as important? The, the thing that was confusing in all this is when I would talk to other athletes about it or even talk to coaches and I'd say, you know, if you could have technology, you could have tools to, to better help you understand training or performance, what would you want? Athletes, especially coaches too, were hyper-focused on how they could get more information about exercise specifically. Oh, we want sweat analysis, we want better video analysis, we want better positional analysis, we want more stats about the performance itself. 
And yet when I asked them, well, what problems are you facing? They often were reciting things back to me that I felt as a, you know, personally as an athlete. Oh, well, we deal with injuries. We deal with player availability. We deal with athletes not training properly on the right days. And so I thought there was a real mismatch between what the market, so to speak, at the time was saying and the problems that they were actually facing. And this is a good lesson, I think, for entrepreneurs too, which is customers are much better at describing their problems than giving you the solutions to those problems. And if you're an entrepreneur, you want to really listen closely to what the problem actually is and then in turn do your very best to create the appropriate solution to that problem. So I thought the problem to overtraining was actually understanding everything outside of exercise too. What are you doing the other 20 hours of the day? How are you sleeping? How are you recovering? And it turned out that was also going to be a really good way to continuously understand the body and to be able to understand all sorts of things as it relates to health. Let's just make it clear for people, Will, you know, what we're talking about here, which is Whoop, which is wearable tech that you created. Um, Damon and I have been lucky enough to use them ourselves. And the feedback is amazing. So if you're listening to this and you're not aware of Whoop yet, um, obviously you can find all the information online. But basically you wear it and it tells you your HRV, which is effectively how well you're recovering, um, so how hard you can train. And then when you do train, it lets you know whether you've trained enough or not trained enough. It measures your sleep, not just how much, but exactly how you're sleeping, the type of sleep you're having. And I remember once I was feeling a bit under the weather um, and it came up with 4% recovery, Will. So I woke up and I was due to go to the gym after the school run at 9am. Look at your eyes widened. You're like, 4%? How ill were you? And I thought, I was like, I don't feel great. But I just checked my, you know, obviously you go on your phone and you check your, your, the feedback from the Whoop band and 4% recovery. And I was on the phone to my PT. I said, like, not today because I just need a rest day. So you were a focused, driven athlete with grand ambitions, I'm sure, for a successful sports career like lots of college athletes have. When you got the answer that doing less was the answer, how did you cope with that? Because I think that is an issue that so many people have, not just people in sport, but people in business, people in life, people who are parenting. They feel like they're not going at 100%, 100% of the time, then they're letting themselves and others around them down. Well, I think it's a challenge for a lot of hard-driving people. You know, hard-driving people have a mindset that allows them to push much further than their body's capable of. And often that's a great asset, but it also is in turn what can cause overtraining, fatigue, burnout if you're an executive. And at least for me personally, becoming uh, fascinated by sleep and recovery was a real uh, a mindset shift. It's not necessarily do less when it comes to exercise or strain or even stress that you're trying to take on. I mean, in many ways, I think success is overcoming a level of stress that would break most people. So in order to take that stress on, you need to be really well recovered. And in, in a way, it, it got me to think about, well, what are all the ways that I can be better recovered? How can I get more sleep? How can I be more calm in these pressure moments? And that translated much better to a business career than, than anything else. So what sort of tips then, Will, did you pick up then on, on how you could maximize that rest, those rest periods? Oof, well, we could go down quite a rabbit hole here. The first thing I'll say, for your audience is that um, sleep is fairly misunderstood. People who have never measured their sleep, if you ask them how much sleep they got last night, 
they'll say, well, I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at six, so I got seven hours of sleep. That's pretty good, right? In reality, they spent seven hours in bed, right? And as you guys know from Wearing Whoop, if you spend seven hours in bed, that's gonna consist of four different periods. It's gonna consist of the time that you're awake. It's gonna consist of time that you're in light sleep. It's gonna consist of time that you're in REM sleep and slow wave sleep. Those are the four different periods. Now, REM sleep and slow wave sleep are where all the magic happens. Awake and light sleep, you don't really get much credit from those from a physiological standpoint, right? REM sleep is when your mind is repairing, so that's cognitive repair. It's also when you're in a deep dream state. So any high-performing executive, anyone who's got to do, uh, you know, real cognitive work, uh, which is really every human, in my opinion, needs to get REM sleep. Uh, uh, slow wave sleep, deep sleep, that's when your body produces about 95% of its human growth hormone. And, uh, and so there's this sort of misconception that, you know, you're getting stronger in the gym or you're getting stronger during practice. But for the most part, you're breaking muscles down that then repair during slow wave sleep. So let's now go back to this person who spent seven hours in bed. That person could have spent a total of 30 minutes in REM and slow wave sleep, or that person could have spent five and a half hours in REM and slow wave sleep. Now, that's a world of difference, right? The person who's getting 30 minutes versus five and a half hours is living a completely different life. I mean, it's so hard to understate the, the, the profound difference in those, in those people's lives and the way that their body's recovering and the, their, their body's sort of resilience to just take on the world. And a lot of what I've done as an entrepreneur, but also a lot of what Whoop does as a product is it tries to help you figure out what are all the different things, could be lifestyle decisions, could be diet, could be mindset, could be training, whatever, that help you optimize the more time that you spend in REM and slow wave. Because again, we didn't talk about spending more time in bed even. We just said, of the time you're going to spend in bed, how do you make it more productive? And I think that's a real key for people. It's not always, oh, just do more of something or do less of something. Sometimes it's taking what you're already doing and making it better. And for sleep, that was, that's been a big focus of mine. And, and it's something that we work with a lot of high-performing executives on and athletes on. For our listeners then, who want more time in those sleeps that are really good for them, what, from what you've learned from you and all of your Whoop customers, what are the things that they need to be doing? Okay, so the first one, which is a general one that applies to everyone, is the more um, consistently you can sleep, the better. So sleep consistency is this notion of going to bed and waking up at the same time. So going to bed at 11 p.m. and waking up at 6 a.m. and doing that almost every day or close to it. You, you, your body gets a physiological boost when you go to bed and wake up at the same time. So even if you're spending less hours in bed, as long as you consistently do them at the same time, you have a positive physiological response. This gets more complicated if you travel a lot. We can get into that sort of nuance. So sleep consistency is really important. As a general rule, being um, more hydrated and not eating within three hours of bedtime that tends to help from a diet standpoint. This is, this is a little bit personal in that some people can get away with eating pretty close to bed, but for the most part, I would guess about 90% of people uh, eating within three hours of bedtime tends to disrupt your sleep. 
Uh, alcohol, unfortunately, is just not good. Uh, so the less alcohol you can drink, the better. If you're going to drink alcohol, uh, it's sort of crescendo. It goes um, wine and then clear liquors tend to be better than dark liquors. So, so there you have it on alcohol. Uh, as you get closer to bed, having less blue light. So, uh, you know, within, say, 30 minutes of, of going to bed, uh, ideally, you're not uh, being exposed to a lot of different screens, cell phone, television, laptop. As an entrepreneur, I'm actually someone who's constantly looking at my phone. And uh, what I do to get away with that is I wear blue light blocking glasses before I go to bed. So those make a big difference. Uh, you generally uh, want to sleep in a cold room, a dark room, uh, have high quality air if you can. You want the room to not be noisy. Uh, those are those are sort of all uh, you know generally positive things, and then you know mindset helps a lot. So making sure that you're not you know getting in some kind of a verbal outbreak with your partner or reading the wrong thing right before you close your eyes, those tend to not help your your overall sleep quality. Uh, supplements varies by person. I I like taking a lot of magnesium before I go to bed, and on I would say a few nights a week I take a little bit of melatonin. Brilliant. So and how much of this is consistent with, you mentioned earlier um, around some of the elite athletes that you're fortunate enough to work with that also use the Whoop brand. What ideas and techniques have you picked up off them that, that you could share with our listeners in terms of driving for this high performance? Well, I, I mean, there's a lot, of, a lot of things come to mind. I think the thing that I've taken most... Um, from, from the, the world's best athletes personally is, is just the general mindset that they have towards greatness. They, they do a, a phenomenal job um, staying present uh, in the sense that they are hyper-focused in the moment on being great. And they don't spend a lot of time really reflecting um, from a nostalgist standpoint. And in a way, it seems they're almost driven to a fault. And the ones who tend to be happiest in being driven to a fault also have some form of gratitude that they bring into their life. So they're simultaneously hungry and they're on that you know, dopamine train of I need to win the next thing while also being grateful for their success. And that's actually a hard combination. I think many high-performing athletes and high-performing even entrepreneurs uh, struggle with being grateful in a sense that it would somehow make them complacent and that in a way it would make them less hard charging. So that, that general mindset, I would say, is one of the biggest things I've picked up from, from professional athletes and, and particularly the world's best. I would say that also they, they are incredibly focused on uh, recovery and, you know, there's this sort of over-focus, I think, from, from a fan standpoint of what athletes are doing during games. And I think there's an under-focus on what they're doing in the other 20 hours. And, uh, and the world's best athletes are competing every minute of the day. They treat themselves like professional athletes when they wake up in the morning, when they go to a restaurant, when they go to a bar, when they're hanging out with people, right? They keep thinking about themselves as professional athletes. And I think that that's a bit of a misconception uh, for, for uh, people who are earlier in their careers or, or maybe not uh, quite as successful as, as they want to be as pro athletes. 
So can I ask you then, Will, in terms of how, how much of this transfers into your own practice now as, a, as an entrepreneur? So we're talking about those elite athletes in a competitive domain, but how much of it does it transfer to you as an entrepreneur into your life? It's, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's helped enormously. I, I also host the podcast, so I get to interview them and, and, and you know, have conversations like the one we're having right now where you spend a lot of time hopefully listening and, and sort of generally curious. So that, that's, that, that's helped me absorb a lot of the information that I, you otherwise you know, may less let drift past you. I, I think uh, I got very focused on this need for for being more grateful in my life, you know, and, and really emphasizing that. I also, uh, in, for the last seven years, have, have meditated every single day. When I was about 24 years old, I think I, I kind of felt like I had reached a moment of crisis in running the company. I was a 24-year-old CEO. I had maybe 25 people working for me. I had raised about $10 million from investors. And all of that felt completely overwhelming. And I felt like I was failing as, a, uh, as an entrepreneur and as a leader. And, and I just was overwhelmed with stress. I was drinking too much. Like I just did, I wasn't, I wasn't in sync, you know. I, w- I didn't feel like my, my body was well balanced and my mind was, was where it needed to be. And, and that led me to, to meditation where I, you know, really developed a, a, a daily practice. And it it really transformed uh, my life in a lot of ways positively. And it helped me, uh, I think, be more present. It helped me be more grateful. And then, you know, in the years to come, as we've got more and more successful, you know, going from the business being worth hundreds of millions of dollars to now uh, $3.6 billion, you know, just being able to, to appreciate that while also still staying motivated to keep charging and, uh, and I think that sort of sense of balance came in large part from from learning to meditate and and uh, and being a little bit more uh, present. I, I really want people listening to this, Will, to understand the possibilities that are out there for them, because I think it's easy for some of them to be driving to work. You know, it might be that they're listening to this in a country where the you know the rain's coming down and they're doing a job they don't necessarily love and they hear this and they think great you hang out with these elite athletes you've built a business worth over three billion and you find time to meditate every day that's not my life do you really believe that anyone can be as successful as you that they can build a business based really on passion which is what you've created do you think that's there for anyone I do. I think you have to be obsessed with a problem. I think you have to be willing to sacrifice an enormous amount. I think you have to be willing to overcome a, uh, an incredible degree of, of pain and sort of personal uh, anxiety along the way. But look, you know, you can, you can build your, your dream job. You know, I think, I think building a business is much harder than you think it will be. But it's not nearly as hard as what everyone will tell you it is, which is to say that it's impossible. I remember when I was starting Whoop, it was everyone telling me I was going to fail and it was impossible. And frankly, it was a really hard, it was just really hard dealing with that. Like I put up a real wall to that feedback. And, uh, and the truth is it was just a lot harder, but it wasn't impossible. So I want to pick up on a few things there. The first one is you mentioned about anxiety. What created that? 
and for our listeners, perhaps more importantly, what did you do to overcome it? Well, you know, I want to be careful not to mix these words too much. There's sort of some combination of anxiety or stress or feeling down on yourself. There's a mixture of that and even nerves, you could argue, you know, standing in front of 20 people or 50 people or 600 people who now work for you and they've left jobs elsewhere to come be on this mission with you, right? Uh, how do you cope with that? How do you manage that? And for me, uh, it was staying very mission-driven. It was being very honest with myself about what I thought I was excelling at and were areas that I needed to bring in business partners or complementary uh, points of view. Uh, it was trying to stay humble about the success that we'd had along the way. And, and then I, I go back to, you know, so the, the whole notion of, uh, of treating yourself as a professional athlete, being well rested, meditating, exercising every day, uh, you know, having good relationships in your personal life. These things all, all matter, in my opinion, for how you perform as a leader. And those people that were telling you in the early days, ah, this isn't going to happen, you know, the odds of creating a successful business out of this is, is negligible, you know, the tech's really hard to create, everyone's tried it. But two things, I suppose. Number one, how did you learn to not listen to those? But also, like, why do we talk to each other like that? What is the benefit of telling anyone at any point that their dream and their great ambition is not going to be a success? It's like, it doesn't solve any problems for you, and I don't think it does much for them either, you know? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it came in the form of what people thought was helpful advice. Um, <laughs> but, Aha, yes. You know, and therein lies the challenge for young people, too, is, is they're kind of at a vulnerable stage in their early 20s or even mid or late 20s when they're still thinking about what they want to do with their career and they're going around asking people for perspectives. In my case, I was also raising capital, so it becomes a little bit more of a transactional relationship, which is why I think many people told me so bluntly they thought I was going to fail. Um, to answer your question, I, you know, one thing that was, uh, that just became a coping me mechanism was effectively just putting up a wall to this negative feedback. And there was really two reasons for that. One is that if I actually listened to all that feedback, I, I don't think I would have been able to get out of bed in the morning because it just would have been overwhelmingly negative. But two, and this took longer to unravel, I at that early stage in building Whoop really tied my own individual performance to that of the company's performance. If, if Whoop was doing well, I was doing well. If Whoop was doing poorly, I was doing poorly. If Whoop was failing, I was failing as an entrepreneur. And that's a, that's a super un, unhealthy uh, relationship to create in your mind. I don't know if it was in part because I was um, a young entrepreneur and this was really the first thing I had done in my career. It was my first job, if you will. Or if that's something that most entrepreneurs face when they're building a company because they become so obsessed with it. But it was certainly the case for me. And, uh, and the thing that it takes a long time to realize, and it took me doing work on myself to realize, is that uh, those are really two independent things. There can be all sorts of reasons why your business is succeeding or failing. And if you actually just focus on your own individual performance and just keep thinking about how can I get a little better every single day, you know, independent from what the outcomes of the company, uh, 
one, you're in a much better headspace, and and uh, you know, two, you, you wake up ten years later, and you're actually now in a position to be running a company of hundreds of people and managing hundreds of millions of dollars and this and that. Whereas at an earlier stage, you felt like you couldn't even manage, you know, ten or twenty people. Do you know what, guys? I think you're going to find this interesting. We're about to be joined by someone who is competing at the very highest level. Just to briefly talk to us about the power of sound, because on this episode, we're working with Bose and John Lewis for the launch of the new Smart Soundbar 900 from Bose. And as you know, you know, I, away from this podcast, I work as a sports presenter, and it was the weirdest thing for me for the last 18 months, two years, to go into stadiums and not have the buzz and the thrill of tens of thousands of people in there when we're doing our work. And bear in mind, I'm not even the person kicking the football on the football field. I'm just standing there talking about it. And I think if we've learned anything in the last couple of years with the coronavirus pandemic, it's that things that we didn't think were important to us or things that we didn't think gave us energy are actually our energy sources, are actually the ways that we drive ourselves on and inspire ourselves. And that's why, really, we wanted to work with Bose, because if sound is important, this amazing soundbar they've created is going to make you think in new ways about the experience of enjoying sport, watching it on the television. Like, Trust me, it's spine-tingling, the way that they put the sound into your ears. And I think it's really important that we have a conversation about the power of sound when it comes to sport. I'm so pleased to say that George Ford of Leicester in England joins us now for a quick conversation about the power of sound. George, nice to see you. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jake. How are you? Yeah, really well, thanks. So let's talk then um, about sound and the importance of sound, whether you're doing my job, standing by the pitch or watching at home or, you know, doing what you do and actually playing the sport itself. Because we're working with Bose and their Smart Soundbar 900, which I have in my house, actually. And it uses amazing Dolby Atmos and immersive sound to take people closer than I've ever felt to being right at the heart of sport. It's exclusive with John Lewis on johnlewis.com until the end of the year. But I think a conversation about the importance of sound when it comes to sport is definitely one that we need to have. And I just thought it'd be really interesting to have a quick chat with you from a high-performance perspective about the impact of sound and what it does to your game. I mean, we're just coming out of a period where you've been playing in front of empty stadiums and things. First of all, like how, how difficult was it to get the motivation and the desire in front of silence rather than a roaring crowd? What was the impact like? Yeah, it was it was very strange initially. I'll be honest with you. Um, I think the first maybe three four games, um, it was bizarre. It was just a very hollow feeling, to be honest. Um, and the biggest thing I noticed was was um, the events that happen in a game that usually have a big momentum uh, shift, good or bad, depending on what it is. Uh, wasn't as significant as what it would be if there was a crowd there, home or away, and things like that. So. Um, I think that's why we saw maybe some more away teams performing a bit better, getting better results. Um, it just seemed to even things up a little bit and it just probably showed how much the game is about the atmosphere and the fans and how that can affect the game as well. And I know, you know, sometimes people will think that we're just, you know, talking about this product because we're being paid to. But honestly, I have this in my house, right? And it is unbelievable. And I think it is, well, it's basically the tech, isn't it? It's the Dolby Atmos and that immersive sound that it creates. I mean, I, I actually watched um, a game of rugby. And honestly, like the sound is above your head or it's over to the left or it's over to the right. Even in my living room, it honestly felt like I was in the cinema. So I'm completely with you, you know, when you talk about 
just how important it is for crowds and for sound to be back at sport. I think it's a really interesting conversation, and I guess in some ways losing the crowds for a period of time has made us appreciate them more than ever. And there was another weird thing I noticed both watching rugby and football is that a big win, like a, a late try or a drop goal or a late goal in a football match or something, and then the whistle goes... And the players aren't really sure what to do because normally at that moment, the stadium's full, the players stay on the pitch, they, you know, congratulate each other, walk around. It was like some of them just sort of stood there and they were just like, what do we do? We just walk back in now? What do we do? Yeah, it was, it was like that, to be honest. Um, if I think of the, the moments probably pre-game when, when the atmosphere's building in the warm-up, that was strange. You had to sort of come up with a way as a team to, to generate your own atmosphere. And I know that sounds a bit strange and daft but that's what you know teams had to do and then um, things like coming back out at half time whether you needed a lift by the crowd that that wasn't there and then at the end of the game like you have a win which you celebrate with the fans usually or or you lose and the fans are there to, to give you support as well it's, it's the same that way as well and it was just like oh the game's finished now let's let's shake hands and walk off and, and like I said earlier it just made me realise how much that the game live sport and the drama that comes with it was there's nothing without them, guys. Is there a value as well, though, at times in silence? Like, I'm just thinking about a huge game for England and it's all swirling around you, all the madness, and then you've got a kick, like a really important kick. What do you want at that moment? Do you want silence? Or does the silence kind of take you out of your flow, if you like? Well, we've got. I think we get used to uh, coming up with like processes or individual things for kickers especially to try and deal with the atmosphere and the crowd and everything that comes with it to put yourself in almost like a little bubble yeah when the heat of the game's going on the crowd's going mad like I use my breathing especially to to try and bring me back to what's important and that's the process of the kick rather than thinking what's just gone on in the game or what could happen next um, so I, I use my breathing especially to, to try and get myself in that sort of state but when the crowd wasn't there it was like I still tried to do the same process, but it wasn't as significant. It was, look, you still need to calm yourself down and get yourself in a place to kick. But it was obviously a lot more demanding to do it in front of a crowd when they're either on, the, on your back or, or supporting for you. And I just want to talk to you then about when the fans are loud and when it drives you on. Can you remember a sort of a moment or a game or a specific incident on the rugby field where you feel like that, that cacophony of noise from the fans has made a genuine difference either to your performance or the result of a game that you've played in? Yeah, uh, there's one game that really sticks out. I think it was um, the Six Nations in uh, 2014. I know that's a long time ago, but we went into that Super Saturday on the last day of, um, of the Six Nations. We played France at Twickenham. And the other results meant that we needed to win by 27 points. And I think the game ended up 55-35. It was an unbelievable game to play in. But the, the crowd, the atmosphere that day at Twickenham, we just went for it as a team. We knew we needed to score points. Uh, we attacked. We scored tries. We let a few in at the same time. But the way they drove us, the way they kept us going uh, until the very, very last play of the game where we, we could have scored and won the game and unfortunately didn't. But um, it just showed the even with 27 points, which is you know quite a bit to make up, when you've got a stadium like that with a f support full of English English fans behind you, it shows that anything is uh, possible. Listen, man, thank you so much for talking to us, and um, very best of luck with whatever the rest of the season holds. And if you love the sound 
of the Smart Soundbar 900 from Bose. It's exclusively with John Lewis until the end of the year. Um, and you can check it out at johnlewis.com or your local John Lewis store. No worries. Thank you, Jet. Oh, I really enjoyed that. You know, that was like a sort of mini high performance podcast episode with George Ford, who is a brilliant, brilliant rugby player for both Leicester Tigers and England. He's at the absolute top of his game. And to hear him talk about the importance of the crowd when it comes to his rugby career is a good reminder to all of you that when you're at an event, make some noise, make those players, make those competitors feel it and hear it. And if you can't be at the event, then the Smart Soundbar 900 is going to make you feel like you are there. It will have a real impact on the way that you enjoy watching not just sport, but anything when it comes to audio, whether it's music or anything else. Um, and you can get the Smart Soundbar 900 at johnlewis.com or head to your local John Lewis store. Um, it's exclusive to John Lewis. So thanks very much, Bose. Thanks to George. Uh, that was fun. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So tell us then, Will, how do you stay humble when you're so successful as, as you are now? And how do you stay optimistic when things weren't so good? What were, what were some of the specific techniques you use? Well, one very key uh, technique was just visualizing what I expected the business to do or uh, to grow to. In, in a lot of cases, especially with the product, uh, building the technology for Whoop, if people aren't familiar, was very hard. And, and a lot of what we were, we were doing or did had never been done before. So there was an existential question of, can we actually build this? And that for an entrepreneur is scary. And, and you also have to manage a team around uh, overcoming challenges. And you have to have this sort of mindset that there's, there's no such thing as a failure along the way. You're sort of just finding new ways that it didn't quite work the way you expected, right? You're constantly reframing things in your mind towards what that, that end goal is that you're visualizing towards. And I recognized, and recognize now looking back on this, some of this came somewhat naturally to me and, and it was just sort of my coping mechanism for moving forwards uh, despite... Uh, feeling pressure or, or feeling overwhelmed. I, I think it also helps a lot to have, uh, you know, a team around you that that you believe in and, and consequently they believe in you and building that camaraderie because, of course, it's easier to take on challenges with a team or together, if you will, than it is to take them on alone. And certainly the success of WHOOP is the success of, of many people working very hard together. Let's talk then about building a team. There are 
many people that listen to this from head teachers of schools to people that run businesses with one or two members of staff uh, we have a lot of sports teams and sports franchises that share this in the dressing rooms and and in the training facilities to build a team is what they're all trying to do how do you do it well i realized along the way that i i looked for a very specific type of person uh to bring onto my team uh and that was uh, someone who embodied high humility and high intensity. High intensity, we'll start there, is you know, being hard driving, uh, having a, maybe a deep expertise in a particular area and, and uh, sort of a re- relentlessness, if you will, to want to explore that and, uh, and better at that. High humility is recognizing that in that pursuit, you don't necessarily have all the answers. And uh, when you're building an ambitious company that's, that's operating across a lot of different disciplines, what often happens is you'll have one individual representing an entire department. So let's take a specific example. Okay, the Whoop Strap. How does it send data from the Whoop Strap to your iPhone? Okay, well, that meeting is going to include a hardware engineer. A signal processing engineer, an iOS engineer, a product manager, a designer, and maybe someone from marketing. Okay, that group of people is going to decide how it sends data. And guess what? They're all going to come in with their own point of view on it, and there's going to be this natural collision, right? And that's that's sort of the beauty of of a high intensity workplace where people are really passionate. But what happens often, if everyone also brings a level of humility to that conversation, is that you know everyone gets focused on figuring out what's the best solution for the company, not I came up with it. And uh, and so I I found that that having people who are high intensity and high humility, uh, you know, were the best problem solvers for our organization. And what in turn that also helped us develop was a was a culture that's uh, more of an idea meritocracy. Because when you enter uh, a workplace or a culture where you feel like you can challenge anyone and you can confront anyone and, and it's ultimately about coming up with the, the best ideas, um, it allows you to, to operate at this real freedom. And, and for the organization's benefit, it means that your best ideas might come from a VP or they might come from an intern. And we've had both. And that's, that's pretty exciting. And that's pretty exciting for anyone in the org to feel. And, uh, and so, you know, as a consequence of this, um, you know, high, high intensity, high humility group of people, we've also been able to build a culture that I think is a high, um, um, an, uh, an idea meritocracy. So that sounds like, I read a great quote from you when you were talking about your parents and you said that line about your mother was book smart, but your dad was street smart which taps into that idea of real cognitive diversity, people coming at a problem from different angles and different solutions. Can you break down, though, for us, Will, for people listening to this, what are the kind of rules of debating or the rules of coming together for a meeting that anyone could take and get the best out of all those different perspectives that you use in uh, in your own culture? Well, I don't know if I've ever defined rules in, in that sense, but I'll try to think about them. Uh, here with you guys in real time. You know, what one general theme I, I would say is uh, you want to embrace chaos, but you don't, 
You don't want any sense of drama. So I'm pro-chaos. I hate drama. And that's one very key point of view, I think, if you're going to have a debate culture, which is that you're going to allow people to be bouncing off each other. You're going to allow there to be this collision. But it's not going to get personal, and it's not going to be about the politics of an organization or who's going to get promoted or who feels this way or that. It's really going to be about the topic at hand. I think that's probably one of the most key things. I think you also want to make sure that you have an environment in which it's clear people are actually listening to each other and they're prepared. You know, uh, if there's a, uh, a draft document for a business proposal, you know, everyone should have read the business proposal before they show up to the meeting. If someone's giving a, an explanation for something over Zoom, hopefully the three people listening aren't also on, you know, uh, Slack messaging other people, but they're actually paying attention. So those are some of the quick things that come to mind. And then I think, you know, the last point, which is maybe lost the most in all of this, is once you do come to a solution, you have to agree to commit to it. Uh, and, and in some cases, there may still be individuals who slightly disagree or strongly disagree with the decision that's made. And you still have to, you know, agree to that. You have to sort of agree to disagree and move forwards. And, and that, I think, is a, another key attribute. And how are you with creating a vulnerable culture? Because it, it struck me that when you were talking about, you know, a conversation about getting the info from the strap to the iPhone, right? There's people in that room that know things. And I hope I'm not being rude here, Will. They know things you're probably never going to know. So you're sitting there thinking... Okay, there's lots of knowledge and lots of learning in the room. You can't possibly know everything. So how are you with making sure that people are vulnerable, that people can admit they don't know certain things, to admit to their mistakes? Because I think creating a vulnerable workplace is as important as creating a successful one. I agree with that. Look, you want to be very uh, intellectually honest about what you think you know and why. And you also want people to be able to push up against that and, and question why you feel so strongly you know something. I think vulnerability often starts at the top. I mean, it, it's no secret that uh, I'm a 31-year-old uh, CEO. This isn't just the first company I started. It's my first job. Uh, we're operating at the intersection of technology and medicine and research. And I'm, you know, I, I, I didn't study engineering or computer science. I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not technically a researcher by trade, so I'm operating in fields that uh, I have to rely on, on the people around me and embrace the people around me and, and hopefully empower the people around me. I think if there's one thing I've, I've done well, it's find exceptional people and empower them to tell us what to do. So how do you manage then, in terms of the nature of the product that uh, that Whoop is, Will, how do you manage intensity in your staff without them risking burnout and some of those other um, consequences of that, that that we often associate with, with that term burnout? Well, you build it into the culture. I mean, Whoop, for example, has a sleep bonus. If you get over 85% of your sleep performance... In a month, Brilliant. you get a bonus every month on your paycheck. Wow. So we actually, we actually pay you to sleep. If you have a red recovery, uh, and this was especially effective during the, sort of the, the height of COVID, 
uh, we ask that you don't come into the office and you work from home. Uh, pe people who have red recoveries, they either may be getting sick or they may be at greater risk to get sick. So it's, you know, in their advantage and others to stay home. We have uh, all kinds of fitness classes that we do together. We're on WHOOP teams together where we're looking at each other's data. It's, it's sort of out there in the open uh, in a healthy way. We were joined on the podcast, Will, by a lady called Susie Ma, who is uh, an entrepreneur that created a skincare brand called Tropic. And she said that one of her defining things is to have the infinite purpose for her life and for her, for her business. And we've created one for high performance. We have an infinite purpose. So it has no end and it's, it's what we're all about. How would you describe the infinite purpose of Whoop? I think it's to improve health. I mean, you put, you put on uh, a Whoop and within a year, you're sleeping longer. You're sleeping more consistently. You have a lower resting heart rate. You have a higher heart rate variability, and you've probably made at least three meaningful lifestyle shifts, whether that's drinking a little less alcohol or finding the right diet for you or introducing something like mindfulness. And I get to hear from Whoop members every single day who the product has meaningfully changed their behavior and improved their health. So that's, that's an enormously rewarding feeling. And... Uh, to your point about infinite possibility, it doesn't feel like that's ever not going to be a good cause to fight for. So what's the future looking like then of tracking technology? Because I think it's in a really interesting place now. It's already helping people to live that more optimal life. What, do, what does it look like in, in 20 or 30 years? Well, I don't even know if you have to look that far out. I think most people are grossly underestimating the degree to which wearable technology is going to change healthcare and dramatically improve health broadly because v1 of wearables to put it politely was kind of underwhelming you had these sort of step step counters that you know vaguely told you information that you needed to know but didn't really action on any of it and you know v2 of wearable technology which i like to think whoop is is out in front of is now able to tell you exactly what to do, tell you how to recover, tell you how to train, tell you when to go to bed. It's much more actionable. Uh, and it's even on that cusp of telling you really interesting things you don't know at all. You know, for example, tens of thousands of people on Whoop discovered they had COVID-19 through their own Whoop data, you know, before they actually got tested, right? That's a pretty profound, um, uh, recognition. We've had people on Whoop realize they had different diseases because their data was so off that they went to go see a doctor. We've had people on Whoop literally go to the ER because they realized they were having a heart attack because of their Whoop data. Now, if you think about what that could demonstrate for going forwards, I think our technology will have the ability to predict disease states, predict you're going to have a heart attack. You know, forget going to see a doctor on a random day of the year for an annual checkup. How about you need to go see a doctor in the next 15 minutes, right? Like how game-changing would that be uh, for you and also for the healthcare system? I mean, a healthcare system, especially in the United States, is totally screwed up. And it's screwed up because it's really uh, curative costs versus preventative costs, and when you can shift curative costs to being preventative costs, the whole system changes. And I think 
wearable technology and, and I expect Whoop uh, will play a big role in that shift. So when Jake and I have interviewed other entrepreneurs similar to yourself then, Will, like one of the things we we notice is that they always have an organization that complies with what we call the T-shirt law, the idea that they communicate what their business does on the front of a T-shirt so everyone can understand it and buy into it. So what's the T-shirt law for Whoop then that, that, that you can get this out to even more people and understand those benefits you've just shared with us? Well, our mission at Whoop is to unlock human performance. So pretty, pretty straight into the point, especially for this podcast. You know, uh, what that also means is, you know, how do you change your behavior to improve your performance? How do you make just true health improvement part of your performance? Uh, but ultimately, human performance in that context is uh, living a healthier and longer life. You know, we're going to move on in a minute, Will, on to our, um, our quick fire questions at the end. I just keep coming back to the same thing while we're talking, which is I really want people listening to this to understand that they might have this great desire to run a business, be an entrepreneur, be better at the job they have, be better parents, whatever it is. And it's almost like from what you've learned from the athletes you hang out with to creating tech like this, adopting the habits now for living where you want to be in six months or six years is the most important thing rather than kind of waiting until that success comes and then go right now I'm going to live like a successful person now I'm going to put my body and my mind at the forefront of my thinking it's the total opposite isn't it yeah that's such a good point you know it goes back to the beginning of the conversation where we talked a little bit about consistency making a slight shift and then doing it consistently consistently for a long period of time has unbelievable compounding benefits I mean, for me, just meditating 20 minutes a day, but doing that every single day for seven years, it completely changed my disposition and my attitude as a leader and the way I thought about my own life. And that's just 20 minutes a day of doing something versus nothing, right? And it's helped me grow into uh, being a successful uh, business leader or being able to be a successful business leader. I, I think there's so many great examples of that. You know, um, we talked a little bit about how you can do that with sleep. What are a few very simple things you can change? I mean, maybe just make your room colder. You know, maybe put your phone down five minutes before bed versus looking at it up until the last second. Maybe wear blue light blocking glasses. Like, people need to be willing to experiment a little more with their with their their lives and their bodies and their attitudes, and and be willing to see where that takes them. Uh, at least for me, that's been an, an enormously important uh, piece of my growth is uh, being experimental and, and seeing where that takes me. That's a good point. Just actually, while we're talking about it, just think how many people we know that are living the same life now that they were living five years ago. I had a conversation with someone about this last week. I was like, you're in the same place without, ex without exploring, without experimenting. It doesn't happen. It's true. So what is the one thing? that you would recommend for our listeners right now from all those changes, all that exploring and experimenting that you've done, where should they begin? What's the one thing? Well, I think a lot of this, this whole discussion comes back to what do you want? You know, I, I think people often are frustrated that they're not getting what they want without actually having clearly defined what it is that they want. And if you just sort of think about a simple method in your mind, ask yourself, what do you really want in life? And then come up with a process for achieving it. And without the first step, it's hard to 
come up with the second or assess the second as, as obvious and simple as that sounds. I, I experience this a lot with uh, entrepreneurs who come to me saying, you know, we're, we're frustrated about this, this, and this, and then we're trying to build this business. And I say, well, what do you actually want for the business right now? What are the three things that you want? And if that's not well articulated in your mind, it's a little bit harder, I think, to, to find a process. If you said, look, I want to lose 20 pounds. I want that. Okay, boom, let's come up with a process for that, right? Uh, so I think that, that, that having a clear definition in, in, in the moment for what you want is, is, uh, is core. Because there's a lot of sacrifices that may also come from that one, that one thought or that one, uh, that one uh, need. I, th I think I read somewhere uh, uh, a desire is a contract with yourself to be unhappy until you get with what you want. Something like that. Now, it's, that's a little depressing, but it's, it's a helpful lens to think about how many desi desires do you actually want to have at one time. You know, the, the more singular they are, the easier it is to achieve them. For the last 10 years, I've been incredibly focused on building this company. I've not had a lot of other, you know, wants in my life. It's really been this. And in some ways, that's helped build the company. So one of the things that... Um I've heard you speak about as well then, Will, is the idea of, of, of focusing on stopping doing things, almost having a stop doing list as much as a start doing list. And that fits in with this idea of a singular focus. So how important is it that you regularly sort of clear the clutter from your life and how do you go about doing that? I think it's critically important. I mean, a lot of destructive behaviours you'd hope you could stop. Uh you know, people who maybe have trouble with binge drinking or smoking or overeating, et cetera, right? Like, uh, if you can remove some of those uh, just as a baseline, obviously you're in a better place. Some people may be at a stage in their life where they say, I just want to have the most fun possible. That's what I want. And, okay, like, you know, then, then you may not view those as destructive behaviors. You may be in a different place in life. Uh, but for people who are listening to this who are really focused on high performance, it'd be worth listing out all the things that you think may undermine your high performance. And look, some of those might be relationships. You know, some this, you kind of have to have some hard conversations with yourself if you're going to go through that exercise. But uh, I think you make a great point, uh, Damien. It's a critical. It's a critical list to be considering. And just before we hit our quickfire questions, I want to come back to your quote about desire as a contract you make with yourself to be unhappy until you get what you want. I've always believed that desire is everything that you need to be successful. The desire comes before the success, no? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm more inclined to, to, to take your quote, actually. I, I, I mostly was, I was making a bit of a stubborn point, which is that you want to be very decisive about the things in your life that you're you're orienting yourself towards. And I think for the most part, uh, desires can be highly motivating. They can be very clarifying. Uh, it's just, you want to be mindful of how many of them at the same time are you after and how are those pulling at each other? It's all about, uh, I guess we could reframe it as something like desire with no steps towards achieving that aim is a contract you make with yourself to be unhappy because it's all the desire is fine as long as you make the effort right to achieve them i think that's right interesting 
So if we can go into our quickfire round then, Will, we normally finish our interviews with a series of quickfire questions. So the first one is, can you list the three non-negotiable behaviours that you and the people around you must buy into? Well, we talked about high intensity. I think that's critical, you know, being hard driving, relentless. We talked about high humility, the, you know, the recognition that you don't, you, you don't have all the answers. And I, I think I would add from a team standpoint, uh, you know, a sense of loyalty, uh, a commitment to one another that you're in it together and, uh, and you're going to persevere together. Nice. Well, if you could go back to one period in your life, where would you go and why? I would say right here now, you know, I, the big focus in the last 10 years for me has been on being present and the importance of being present. And I think the more present you get, the more fulfilling your life feels and the better you perform. So right here, right now. How important is legacy to you? Legacy in the sense that I've helped build products or teams that live on well past me, uh, I would say quite important. You know, I like the idea of, of being able to create things uh, from scratch and have those things be contributing value uh, well beyond my existence. Legacy from the sense of uh, who was Will Ahmed, I, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't thought enough about that, but I guess I like the trajectory that I'm on and, and I'm mostly focused on, on kind of keep going. The last hour has been full of brilliant takeaways and lessons for our listeners. If you could recommend, though, one book or maybe another podcast series, apart from your own, obviously, which you're welcome to plug again, or a TV series, something that you've absorbed that made a difference to you that you'd love to pass on to our listeners? Well, I'd love to plug the podcast for a second. You know, the, the, the one thing I'll say about having done a podcast, and I'm curious if it's the, the same for you guys, is the process of, of actually interviewing people for an hour is a really important process for learning how to listen. You know, you have to be incredibly present, as you guys have been, and you have to really listen. And, uh, and so for me personally, having, done, having gone through that exercise of doing a podcast, I, you know, I said we'll do 10 and see how it goes, and now we're on, I don't know, 130 or something. And, uh, but just having gone through that process of, of having to really listen to people and think about what they've said and ask follow-up questions and ask follow-up questions, because as you guys know, depth is kind of the where all the magic happens. Uh, it, that's been an incredibly useful process for me personally. And so this is a di slightly different answer to your question, but I would encourage people to think about ways in their life that they are forced to uh, listen to people really deeply and to, uh, to ask questions and follow up on them and think about them. Yeah, I, I think the thing for us with creating high performance is you realize everyone has got something of value for somebody else. And I think we all just live in this world, don't we, where we float past everyone. And actually, if you stop and engage them and really, as you say, get to the deep stuff, really understand what motivates them, it, it, it's magic. Magic for so many people. 100%. So the final question then, Will, is what's your one golden rule for our listeners to live a high-performance life? Uh, I think it, it's com combining... Uh, purpose with consistency you know back to your original point of what is high performance i think it's an exceptional output delivered consistently over time a lot of my life has been 
learning that and wrestling with that, and especially as an entrepreneur, being someone who has the same consistent performance every day and being a predictable outcome as a result for the rest of my team and my investors and my shareholders and, and our customers, you know, maintaining that, that consistency, I think is so key. It's brilliant. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I'm always very aware, aware when we have these conversations with someone like you that has built a business valued at over $3 billion that it's very easy for people to listen and think, well, you know, that is so far away from where I am in my life. Um, and I don't want people to think we're having this conversation because anyone can then just go and do that. Although, you know, the possibility is there. I think that's the lesson here for people is that it's not about that end goal and that big moment. It's about the everyday, tiny, small details, the little processes. If you can get those right, you might build a $3 billion company, but you might just be happier or healthier or able to run after your kids a bit longer in the park. And that in itself is, is well worth doing, you know? Well, yeah, and to, to your point, that those numbers are also a little misleading in the sense that I was struggling more with with running a ten million dollar company than I am now with strugg- you know with managing a uh, a multi billion dollar company and I think a lot of a th- the theme today was what are the the little things that you're doing to grow into a larger role or or to become a slightly better version of yourself and so for me it was putting a lot of those practices in play and then the the business in a way actually followed but it's not don't feel like because you're having a hard time running your two-person company that you have no chance of being able to build a big business. A lot of it is getting comfortable in that moment so that you can then grow into it. There you go. Everything you now find easy, you once found hard, right? For sure. Will, thank you so much. Thank you, Will. That's been incredible. Damien, Jake, thanks for having me, guys. Damien. Jake. What a bright guy, hey? I loved it. I thought it was really good, really stimulating, brilliant sort of uh, insights into just somebody that started with a passion, identifying a problem, and then uh, seeking through curiosity and intensity really innovative solutions. And I do, I do keep coming back to this point in my head that people can already be, they look at him and go, oh, he runs a $3 billion business. Like the guy is a multi-billionaire. How old did he say he was? 31, 31. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's got that at, at that age and it's very easy for people to go well he, you know he, he obviously now can live a life of you know of a billionaire but actually I think everyone listening to this can when he spoke about looking at your daily routine and just changing tiny things and I was thinking yep I could do that and that and that putting your phone down a bit earlier eating breakfast when you normally skip it spending five minutes extra talking to your kids about their day trying to be present in the moment. None of those are things that are suddenly unlocked when you've created a multi-billion pound business. They're just things you can do yep. at any time. Well, how many of our guests have spoke about brilliant basics like Saria McGeekin said, you know, remember from uh, when Phil Neville back in series two spoke to us about Eric Cantona, that phrase, the endless repetition of simple acts was what he did, you know. And even now we're listening in series six to an entrepreneur telling us about the endless repetition of consistent acts lies at the heart of high performance. Whatever it is we do, whether it's going to bed at the same time, whether it's uh, being responsive to messages, it's all about that um, repetition of doing the same thing over and over again, just really well. What you said at the end was interesting as well, wasn't it? That he was struggling more 
running a $10 million business than a $3 billion business. And I think sometimes people will look at their lives and they think, well, look, if I'm finding this tough, I'm not worth anything more than this. I'm never going to achieve any more than this because this is difficult enough for me. But that, that message from Will is the total opposite of that. Yeah, again, I think it's a really powerful point that he's making there that sometimes what what is um, what we anticipate, he said it, didn't he? The idea of starting a business is often more intimidating than the realities of doing it. We can often, our brain can trick us into assuming that we're not capable of something or we won't have the resources when the reality is just doing it. We'll often find the resources when we really need it. Yeah, I really enjoyed that, Damien. Thanks ever so much. Thanks, Jake. Loved it. Top man. Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Hi. (laughs) This is one of our favourite parts of any high performance episode, um, where we get to speak to someone who has got in touch with us to say high performance has made a difference. Natalie, are you cool if I just start by reading out what you sent us on, uh, on Instagram? Absolutely. Go for it. Sweet. So Natalie said... This may seem really dramatic, but I just have to let you know that the High Performance Podcast has changed my life. After listening to the amazing show with Michelle Moan, it's given me clarity, confidence and inspiration. And get this, this is worth a round of applause, Damien. Last week, I won Businesswoman of the Year for my business that I set up in May 2020 with my husband. I still can't believe it. Thank you for everything you do and for every inspiring episode that make a huge difference to people's lives. Amazing work. Thank you to everyone involved. Of course, we'll pass your message on to everyone involved, Natalie. But I just think it's so important for other listeners to kind of hear stories of people that are going through a similar experience and listening to high performance and feeling the impact. So has changed my life. That is a big statement. Can you explain how and why? It is a big statement and it is a little dramatic, but that's honestly how I feel. And I just, I just had to tell you guys, because honestly, I cannot thank you enough because this is listening to your podcasts have honestly positively impacted almost every aspect of my life in terms of my parenting, you know, being a wife um, in the business world, of course, and just me personally, I feel like I've gone such a massive personal growth and on a, on a journey And honestly, I can stem it right back to listening to that very first podcast. Now, I am totally out of the loop and I've only just got into the the podcasting world over the last few months and just so happened to start listening to you guys. And it was honestly the best thing that I've ever done. And the the first one I listened to was the Michelle Moan podcast. And it was like uh, a, a switch was flicked in my head or in me. And it just it just evoked something inside of me that I just thought I want to, I want to do this. I want to, I want to be this person. And and I I found myself in the business world, not really with any experience and um, very new to it all on a, on a real learning curve. We, we set up a, a lockdown business that was doing really, really well, but it felt alien to me. And I didn't feel um, kind of worthy of, of my, of, of where I was and my position and then I, I was being asked to do sort of um, radio interviews and things like that, which was brilliant, obviously, but I just didn't have the confidence to do that. And I kept thinking, why Why am I being asked to do people want to know? And really not feeling positive about myself, positive about business, but not about me as a person. And listening to that podcast just made me think, wow, I, I took so much from it. And it was almost like that was it then. I, I wanted more. I wanted to hear more. I wanted to find out more. 
And every podcast that I listen to now, I can take like little hidden gems from it and it's unlocking like little secret treasure and words of wisdom that I can then implement into my life. And the bite-sized ones are brilliant as well. So even if I can't listen to an entire episode, the bite-sized ones that summarize, you know, what you, why is, I mean, your, your questions are brilliant. Your guests are amazing. And it just takes so, so much from it. The money is in, the, the check is in the post, isn't it, Damien? <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for yeah. being so kind and generous with, uh, uh, with your feedback. But would you tell us something specific then? So if we go back to that Michelle Moan episode, what was it specifically that you took away and implemented into your life? So when I was listening to Michelle Moan, it's someone that I've always looked up to as, you know, I've always thought she was just this amazing female entrepreneur that but almost probably had it easy and just got really successful. And I think you probably mentioned in your podcast that you, you kind of had a similar notion about her that she just got really successful and, and, and had it like this easy ride. And when I was listening to her and all the things that she'd gone through, which was just incredible, I was moved to tears in some parts. And I thought she has such determination and courage and strength and resilience. And they're all qualities that I didn't realize at the time, but I, I have those qualities. And, you know, I nearly died when I was age 10, I contracted meningitis and sepsemia and nearly died. So I'm really, really lucky to be here. So I always have a positive outlook on life, but never had that confidence or, or I didn't feel like I had that resilience. But when I said it's like a, a, a switch was flicked, it, yeah. that's what it was like. And I, and I listened to Michelle and although she's been through some horrendous things that I just, um, my heart breaks for her. There were lots of things that I felt relatable to myself that I thought, you know, but you can do that but you could do that, but you could go on to do that. And it, it was just so inspirational. And, and, and the, your questions were amazing and, and, and she was just brilliant. And it just really encompassed everything about a female entrepreneur that I thought, you're on this journey already, have some belief, have some confidence and just go for it. Because if Michelle can do it, you can, Natalie. I love that. It's almost it's a bit like that story, Damien, about the fish in the sea and one fish swims past another and says, lovely lovely morning in the ocean. And the other fish goes, well, what ocean? Yeah. Because often we're in something, we don't realise we're there. And this is, this is relevant, not just to Natalie, but so many people listening to this podcast, Damien, is that they're already doing the things that they don't believe are high performance. But then they listen to our guests and realise, oh my goodness, I'm... I'm in that now. It's just that imposter syndrome is sitting there on our shoulders going, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you're never going to achieve it, other people are better. Silence that voice and amazing things can happen, right? See, I was nominated for this award in, in May and I felt embarrassed. Why is that? I thought they'd made a mistake. So when I got nominated for this Businesswoman of the Year, I thought, how embarrassing, they've made a mistake. They're going to contact me and say, oh, not really, it's not you. And then when they didn't, I just felt, that I was having to try and justify it because people saying, oh, you know, congratulations. And I just felt mortified. No, that, that's not, I shouldn't really have it. So that was in the May and started listening to the podcast around June, July time. And then by the time the awards ceremony came round, I actually, and I already felt like a winner, and this is going to sound a bit cheesy and a bit cliche, because I'd actually realised that, you know, what, whatever happens, you do deserve to be a finalist. And that was such a switch of mindset from initially being nominated and feel completely embarrassed and un undeserved of it 
to then think, you know what, well done for getting to this point because you really deserve it. And that was such a huge shift for me in my mind. And I don't want to come across as, as arrogant or anything like that, In you know, or having that belief in myself. And I, and I said to myself on that night, just having that switch means that you've already won. So regardless of what happens with the actual physical award, and don't get me wrong, it was lovely to win. But for me, I'd already had my own yeah. personal victory. And what was it, Natalie, you made that comment earlier on that you felt that it had had an impact on you as a mum as well. What, what sort of different changes have you noticed in that regard? So I often pick out little pieces from the podcast. And what I absolutely love about you guys is that I'll be thinking whilst you're talking to your, your guests, thinking, I wonder how I could apply that to my parenting. And then you'll go, so if I was talking to my children about this, and I think, yes, <laughs> you said it exactly when I needed that. So I can cherry pick little bits and bobs, you know, like how to be a killer communicator. You know, I, I've got a 14 year old and I have a four year old. So my negotiation skills have to be on point. So, you know, I got some great things from that. Um, and I've just started to to tell my 14-year-old to start listening to the podcast because I thought, if this can change my life at 36, imagine the impact this could have on a 14-year-old that's got the whole world in front of her. And she and, and I've, I've noticed a massive change in her as well. She listened to the Michelle Moan one off my recommendation. Now she's listening to more of her own accord. And I've seen a huge shift in her confidence too. So this is having a massive impact, not just on you know, our generation, but on the younger ones too, whether that's through their parents or teachers listening to the podcast and passing down the knowledge and the wisdom that they're learning, or whether they're listening to it and consume it themselves. You guys are honestly amazing can't thank you enough oh as are you hey listen have you got three non-negotiables to share with us yes it's very simple is is be kind i think that's the the number one if that's at the heart of everything you do to yourself as well as to others by the way absolutely yeah, yeah. you know what i do high five myself in the mirror thank you Mel Robin, <laughs> for that. honestly what an impact that has who can believe it mad isn't it but it does work it does because <laughs> yeah. it makes me immediately smile and, you know, if you start the day with a smile on your face, you know, what can go wrong? So thank you again for that one. Um, so work hard. Good one. To be, you know, be the best that you can be, basically, and do not compare. Oh, lovely. I like that last one. We're all on our own journey. And it's okay to look to the side of you and see what other people are doing. and and But be proud of them. Like, don't have that jealousy in you. Like, I look at other people in the business and think, wow, you're doing brilliantly. Well done, you. I'm on this path and this is me and this is our business and our company. And so, yeah, be apologetically it. yourself. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, well, that links to on the interview that has uh, just preceded this uh, that we've done with Will Ahmed. Will talked talk very much around that idea of desire is, is creating an uncomfortable state until you get to where you want to be. But that's very much an individual journey. So that really resonates. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on here and being so honest and so eloquent. And, you know, we often get messages saying high performance podcasts are great. But I would love to hear from so-called normal people about their high performance journey. And I think these little conversations are fulfilling that really. And I hope it's powerful for other people to hear that they're not on their own on this journey with us on high performance. You know, there are many other people on the way to work or walking the dog or going for a run who are listening. And, you know, let's not... Um, Let's not be embarrassed or think it's odd that we can listen to a podcast and it can change our lives because you get information from so many different places and it's cool to listen to this 
and uh, and let it impact you. So listen, you might enjoy this conversation. We are enjoying it even more because it's so good for us to meet you and hear your story. Thank you so much. Honestly, I, I, I don't know how I can kind of repay you, but when I say it's life-changing, I'm, I'm being deadly serious. So thank, oh, wow. thank everything you. you for all your guests, the production team, everyone involved. Keep Keep doing it because it's just phenomenal, the impact you have. Thank you. Thank you. And listen, we're repaid every day you wake up with a smile on your face, feeling good, empowering your kids, making your colleagues feel great. That is all the repayment that we need, all right? Okay. But I have pre-ordered the book as well. So <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> that helps. Oh, she is lovely, Damien. Yeah, too. It was really, really heartwarming to hear that. I think what I liked, Jake, was Hearing what the stories do, I think what what our guests do is tell us stories, and stories have got two two purposes. One, they can inspire, like Natalie described, but secondly, as well, they can illustrate. They can show us the ropes. They can almost like plot in a path for us to understand how we can take it and apply it ourselves. And the inspiration and illustration bit is really great to hear how people are taking it and applying it, like Natalie's just described. Wonderful. And I hope for you at home, um, the things that she's learned either resonate with you or maybe get you thinking a bit further about how high performance can impact you. Um, and she obviously mentioned the book there. If you, by the way, want to order the book, um, it's out on the 9th of December, but you can pre-order it right now. All you have to do is just scroll down on the uh, description for this podcast. You'll see the link right there and you can order it. Tell you what, Damien, um, so I, I wasn't aware to where we were talking, but Natalie runs a business. Should I just give it a quick shout out? I think I've got her email, uh, her web address here. Right, so colleaguebox.co.uk is Natalie's business that she's created herself. She created it in lockdown. Um, and it looks like um, they're personalised gift boxes sent to your colleagues, your friends and your colleagues. So why not why not give her a shout out and wish her all the best with her with her own business, colleaguebox.co.uk. Um, we've got lots of other feedback from the week, Damien. Um, an amazing reaction actually to the John McAvoy episode. Um, Harry on Instagram said, I've listened to John McAvoy talk on a few occasions and always been astonished by his story, inspired and ultimately impressed by him as a human being. Um, Ian said, one of the best episodes that I've ever listened to on any podcast, what you're doing at the moment is incredible, wonderful lessons for all walks of life. Um, a message from Phil saying, um, John McAvoy's dedication to helping others is unbelievable. What a top guest to get on. Um, and Simon said, I watched John McAvoy on the High Performance Circle when it was released. Then I listened again this morning. I definitely picked things up second time around that I didn't initially. So what an inspiration. And if you're wondering what is the High Performance Circle, um, it's our members club where you can get access earlier than anybody else to some exclusive podcasts. There are keynote speeches. There are boosts on there. You'll get a newsletter. Uh, we work with partners to give you discounts and stuff. All you have to do to become part of the High Performance Circle is go to the High Performance Podcast. Dot com. I love hearing those stories, man. I love hearing them. Um, and I hope that, I just hope that people realise that it's, it is cool, isn't it, Damien, to listen to a podcast and get inspiration. It doesn't have to be from some, you know, amazing book that's been out for 30 or 40 years full of wisdom. I suppose the other thing I always think about, right, when people like Natalie talk, Damien, is that they attribute it to us, right? But it really is nothing to do with us, is it? We're literally just having a conversation it's Natalie taking the learnings. It's Natalie passing it on. It's Natalie being inspired. It's Natalie doing, you know, what she can to get her children listening to it. That's the key thing. It, like, people have to take responsibility, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that we're almost like curators of this, that we're lucky enough to meet these people and curate their stories. But it's somebody that needs to make that commitment 
like when we talk about high performance, people don't sleepwalk their way to high performance where they wake up one day and do and they're delivering high performance and they wonder how they got there. They've had to make a decision that they want to go after it and the decision to listen to the podcast, the decision to open their mind, the decision to take a learning from it and apply it, that all has to come from the individual and that's that's the key bit that I know we both emphasise an awful lot on this, that we're, we're incredibly lucky that we get to do it, but it's people making that choice to take it and apply it is the real difference. And we can't thank you enough for getting in touch and sharing your thoughts with us. Listen, um, Will Ahmed is a really inspirational guy, isn't he? In fact, while we were doing the interview with Will, I was, I was, we, we use Zoom basically for these chats with people when they're abroad or they can't get to us. And I was messaging Damien going, he is so bright and so inspiring for 31 years old. Amazing. Um, and uh, if in whatever way it's impacted you, we would love to hear what you make of Will Ahmed or any other episodes that you're listening to at the moment. You can get in touch with us at High Performance on Instagram. Damien is at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. But please, I'd love you just to ping us a message. Tell us what you're learning. Tell us how and why you're learning it and um, how High Performance has impacted you. And before we sign off, a quick message. This is from Jake, um, who sent us, and it isn't me, sent us a message saying, this podcast is a game changer for everyone. I reckon I'm the original OG, one of the first to start listening to you guys. I used to tell my friends and family about you from the start and now they're hooked. During the first lockdown, you got me through some tough times on my walk during my one hour exercise per day. And now you're helping me evolve as a professional golfer and coach, but more importantly, as a person from how to win the morning like Phil Neville to being my own cheerleader from high-fiving myself in the mirror. Love that, Jake. We love all of you for sharing your thoughts. Damien, thanks ever so much for your time, buddy. Thanks, mate. Loved it as always. Good to catch you up. And you. Have a brilliant week, everybody. Wherever you are, whatever you're up to, please keep coming back to High Performance. If you're struggling, if you've got questions, if you need a little hit of inspiration, just pop an episode on. And I really do recommend popping on an episode that perhaps you wouldn't expect to be inspired by because those are the ones that will really wake up your mindset. Those are the ones that will provide that cognitive diversity just to get you looking at the world in a different way. As you know, we couldn't do this without Damien Hughes. Thanks to, to Finn Ryan and also Sophie King from Rethink Audio for their hard work on creating this podcast. We couldn't have done it without them. As you know, we couldn't do it with the team of Will and Eve and Hannah. Of course, we couldn't do it with our founding partner, Lotus Cars. But most of all, we wouldn't do it if you weren't listening to it, if you weren't getting something from it and you weren't telling us about how high performance has impacted your life. So whether it's listening to this podcast, buying the book, coming to see us on tour in 2022... Just keep on interacting with us and we'll keep building this community of people looking to live a high performance life. Whatever you are, whatever you're up to, have a great day. See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.